Relatively Geeky presents Doom Speak, Doctor Doom 2099, 17 and 18. Welcome back to Doom Speak, the ongoing chronicle of the fantabulous exploits of the world's leading uh, leader, the rightful ruler of Latveria himself, Dr. Doom. And in this episode, we're revisiting a series we have covered a number of times over the years here by discussing Doom 2099 issues 17 and 18. But first, a little feedback. Last time, we talked about Doom's utter dominance of the Acts of Vengeance crossover. Chris Willette said he was glad to be listening to the episode. Billy D. from Magazines and Monsters wrote in, Hey, Professor, great coverage of the Punisher slash Mary Marvel Marching Society event. I voiced my disappointment with the entire comic book event on Into the Weird, but I'd forgotten about these two issues. They're a lot of fun. I agree, Billy. They were pretty fun reads, all things considered. Gene Hendricks latched onto one specific comment that I made about one specific character. And if you know Gene well, you know which character. And Quasar among them, as he should always be, Professor, as he should always be. Yeah, Gene. Sure. Sure. And Sir Martin of Grey made some earth-shattering confessions. You know, I've never read a Punisher comic and I missed this crossover entirely. The high concept behind it sounds fair enough, until you think about it for ten seconds. Sure, we have heroes fighting villains they've never previously battled, so it's true that they don't know their weaknesses intimately. But every regular villain had a first encounter with a hero, and lost, even Doom. Well, first, other than that unwarranted, out-of-left-field insult to Doom's honor, that's a really good point. And I was thinking about this more, more big picture about Acts of Vengeance, and that in the Marvel world, where everybody is in the same world, everyone's in the same city just about, it's not all that unusual for a hero to come across a rogue associated with a different primary hero, or vice versa. In DC, that's completely out of the question, and if it does happen, it is a momentous occasion. But in the 616, it does happen. Everyone crosses paths with everyone eventually. So yes, at the script level, like you're saying, Martin, Every villain always loses their first outing against anyone. It just doesn't work. And so the concept of the series just isn't going to work. And then I would add, even at a more conceptual level almost, there are logical issues here. But that doesn't mean 
that some of the stories can't be fun. Laurel, Mountain Flower from the Huntress podcast pointed out the obvious. Yay, more doom always makes the weak better. That is wise and insightful, my friend. And special thanks go to Luke Giaconetti and podcasting's Michael Bailey, who both directed me to the Dr. Doom sale at Comixology from a few weeks back. I don't know when that sale expires. I think it was Luke who said he picked up the first trade of the recent Dr. Doom series. And I think in his case, the situation was, come for the Kang, stay for the Dr. Doom. Hope you enjoy those, Luke. And social media support for that last episode came from Derek W.C. from the fan holes, The Brains, behind the whole Axe of Vengeance crossover operation. Vic in Phoenix, Clinton Robinson from the new podcast Days of High Adventure, James Williams, and James, we are with you. Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, The Rolled Spine Podcasts. Paul from the Collected Edition, the Between the Pages blog. Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army. J. David Weeder, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, from the Outcasters podcast. Manuel Carmona, from the Independent Comic Project New Wave. Sir Iowa's Joe, Chris Lydon. Ed Moore, from Teal Productions. Chris, from Professor Frenzy. It's a show. Both Delvin and Pat from the Long Box Crusade. The Liquid Awesome, Baby Skeletor, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Seth Tucker, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. Now, before we dive into issues 17 and 18, of Doom 2099, I want to reset the title and and reset where we are in the storyline, because it has been a while since we talked about the title, and it's been even longer since we were actually in the middle of this story. Because we did talk about the issue right before this, issue 16, about a year ago, on Presents episode 22. But that one was a fill-in. Sort of a background issue about Doom, written and drawn by Ernie Cologne. So we have to go back way further to pick up the storyline of this issue, both the general Doom 2099 story and this specific storyline. On Quarterbin 99, released in May of 2017, I covered issues 14 and 15. Uh, 14 was a crossover, but 15 started the three-issue Radian storyline that today's issues are a part of. So for context, let me give you a very brief summary, a little bit of previously in Doom 2099. The backstory for these issues involve one of Doom's compatriots, Fortune. Her brother, Kaz, was long thought dead, but then in issues 12 and 13, word came that he was alive, and Fortune 
set out to find him with Poet joining her, albeit as a stowaway. And they headed first to Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, Fortune pressed Lei Fong for a full explanation of what was happening to her brother. You see, Kaz was found preserved inside an alien spacecraft buried for centuries in the Himalayas. Kaz hears in his head extraterrestrial melodies and, and, and rhythms that have been burned into his brain. On one of Hong Kong's outlying islands, Fortune and Company break into a shuttle just as it's ready to launch. Fortune is surprised to find Poet inside waiting for them. When they dock on the orbiting Chin Shan space platform, they are met by the woman behind all of this, Feng Wang, who reminds her sister Lei that her influence extends everywhere. In Latveria, Doom discovers that Earth has been abandoned by the interstellar empires. His scanner can only find one transport signal. Doom quickly traces the location of that signal to a craft buried beneath the snow in Nepal. Inside the titanium-shelled cave, he is attacked by a being in golden, radiating armor. This is the being Radiant. There is a great splash page of the golden being Radiant reaching out towards Doom, who has been knocked to the ground. So, with that as the background, and with your appetites whetted for action, let's take a break, play a promo, and when we come back, we will dive mercilessly into Doom 2099, 17, and 18. He's the grand old man of Marvel. Stan Lee was involved in the creation of some of the world's favorite comics characters like Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, and the Hulk. But he didn't create them on his own. Artists like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were also instrumental in the creation of these characters, but many fans of the Marvel movies don't even know their names. Did Stan take too much credit by design? Or was he just given the credit because he's more media friendly? Millions of words have been written about Lee, both to praise him and disparage him. What are the books about Lee that you should read? On Deconstructing Comics, we're going to screen the books about Lee so you don't have to. Join us, True Believer, as we read as many books about Stan Lee as we can stand, and compare them to each other. Find Deconstructing Comics in your favorite podcast app, Excelsior. And we're back. For the synopses, we'll run these two together and then do our analysis after that. Doom, 2099, number 17 at a cover date of May 1994 and a cover price of $1.50. The cover by Pat Broderick shows Doom at the top of the page standing in front of some of his own logo. Below him, is the golden-colored Radian, complete in his Kirby homage of an outfit, 
holding his Galactus-style helmet with Kirby dots all about him. The cover declares Radian Revealed, and we see Radian in all his golden-haired and golden unibrowed glory. The story, Radian and Reunion, was plotted by John Francis Moore, but scripted by Peter David. This is the first time, aside from the two full fill-in issues by Ernie Cologne, that Moore has had a co-writer. I assume, I'm curious, if this was a deadline issue, because Moore picks up with the full scripts for the next batch of issues before he starts to transition out of the title in the mid-20s or so. Art was by our main team of Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. We start with a splash page with Radian still wearing his helmet, Doom on the ground before him. Doom, in his mercy, is inclined to offer latitude to the newcomer. Do you see, you great glowing buffoon? Let none claim that Doom is totally without compassion. Radian is actually kind of unimpressed with Doom holding him in stasis for a time before attempting communication. The words he speaks are not understood, but a picture begins to coalesce between the two. On the space platform, Fen Wang battles with a bunch of Russians led by Morkovkin, and this all ends with Morkovkin being shot off the platform into the cold embrace of space. Feng Wang not messing around. In a later page, we see Morkovkin drifting in space, focusing all of his hatred on Feng, hoping that she will never again know peace. In that Aftermath, she asks Fortune, or as she calls her, in a pretty good pun, Miss Fortune, if she'd be interested in offering her prognostication skills to her. But nothing is negotiable until Fortune sees her brother Kaz, which Feng Wang allows. But Kaz nothing more than an empty shell. There's no expression in his eyes. Or as Poet puts it, there's no there there. But Feng claims that this was how she found him. Your brother's brain was altered by alien technology, a race with whom we await first contact. And I alone will benefit from that technology. Back with Doom, the golden-clad Radiant continues his alien speech and then disapparates. Doom uses the nearby technology to recreate the energy patterns that enabled Radiant to depart. Where did you depart to, however, he ponders. Let us find out. Doom appears right behind Radiant, who has appeared on the space platform we just left. So all of our cast is together again in one location. 
Feng Wang attempts to hem the big being in, but to no avail. Doom notes that it appears that her orders are of little import now. Is the big guy with you? Fortune asks Doom. And chagrined, he is forced to answer truthfully, I rather am with him. Removing his golden helmet and revealing his golden hair and golden unibrow, the visitor introduces himself as Radian of the Elestia. It's spelled Y apostrophe L E S T J A. So I'm going to go with, and I hope I'm going to consistently go with, Elestia. And everyone on the space station hears Radiant in their own language. Doom, however, does note that Radiant speaks Latverian with an abysmal accent. And then, in their own language, with no one else understanding, Radiant speaks with Kaz. This is interrupted by Feng Wang with a weapon and ready to fire it. Put that down! Are you completely deranged? Doom asks in a calm and reasonable tone. They argue, but Radian interrupts, pointing out that nothing particularly matters anymore. None of your earthly concerns do. For as you can see, and then we turn to the final page, a full Page splash, showing a huge ball of glowing energy, much larger than the station. Approaching the station, the Elestia are here. To be continued in Doom 2099, number 18 from May 1994, which was released at an original price of the very reasonable and well worth it, a dollar and fifty cents, which speaks well of the strength of the Latverian currency, the Doom Buck. The cover by Broderick again shows Doom in outer space, cape flapping behind him, eyes glowing, hands outstretched menacingly. Wrapping around one of his hands in a circle are the words, Space showdown. It's kind of dramatic. It gets the job done for sure. And to be honest, this wouldn't be a bad poster. The story, Communion, is described on the splash page as an explosion of cosmic revelation, illuminated and interpreted by writer John Francis Moore and artists Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. We start back inside the Chinshan space platform. Doom is monologuing about the historic first contact that is about to occur between mankind and the Elestia. And now we discover whether this mysterious race comes with peaceful or hostile intent. We learn that the approaching ship is just a manifestation of the collective consciousness of the aliens, and Radian is merely their servant, their herald, if you will. Doom scolds Feng Wang for behaving with petulance, while the unconscious Kaz 
glides through a tide of memories. And then Radian announces that the ceremony of communion must begin soon. To be chosen by the collective is an honor of celestial magnitude. At Doom's prompting, Radian explains that Kaz represents the crossroads of the human species. This might be the Elestia's last opportunity to fully join with humanity. And as part of his sales pitch, Radian restores Kaz to consciousness. We dance the light transcendent, Radian goes on, continuing his TED Talk. We sing the harmony constant. We celebrate the forever rhyme. We share the bond universal. But doom is not swayed by the sales pitch. Won't let myself be subsumed by these aliens. Must concentrate. Ignore the voices. The Elestia's presence appears throughout the world and across the 2099 universe. It's visible to Miguel O'Hara, to the Wakandan princess Okusana, and in the Savage Land, and to the cyber surfer Wire back in Latveria. Everyone simultaneously receives this gift, a momentary glimpse into the magnificence of the universe. Doom finds that the experience has left him feeling oddly content and hopeful. I must be certain that my armor has recorded all the events of this day. They warrant study, as does the being called Radian. The Elestia depart that area of space, saying they shall meet again at the hour of ascension. As Radian relinquishes control of the station back to Feng Wang, she is not pleased. Sanctimonious alien scum, you have no future, Radian. Realizing that his power is diminished now that his masters have returned to deep space, she turns her field disruptors on Radian, and with a blamph, he's gone. Doom yells at the woman, asking what purpose was served by killing the alien. And she has an answer. I do not like being crossed, and I claim the final moment of spite. I have activated the station's self-destruct sequence. She foops away, commenting that she hopes they will not meet again. Now, Doom cannot stop the countdown, but he does open the doors to the escape pod bay. Come on, Kaz, Fortune tells her brother. I didn't find you after all these years, only to let you die in space. She hopes that being back among their tribe, the Zephyro, will help fully restore his mind. Back on the platform, Feng Wang gloats. Fools. I destroyed Radian, but not his armor. Analysis of its alien composition will prove most valuable. But, unfortunately for her, Doom 
materializes right behind her because, see, he also wants the golden armor. But the auto-destruct sequence is still primed, so Doom cuts the banter short. Let us be clear. The armor is mine. You no longer have time to stop the countdown and stop me from taking the armor. I hope that you can rise from the ashes, for they will be scattered across space if you challenge me again. Back on Doom's ship, they watch the space platform explode. And Fortune gets the closing monologue. Today we met a race so in love with the universe that they've dedicated their existence to sharing their sense of wonder. And we responded by killing or trying to kill their emissary. If we don't get our priorities straight, how will we survive the next century, let alone the next millennium? The end. So, what did I think of this? First, I think this was interesting in terms of the type of story that this was. This was the first real diversion of a story that we've gotten these three issues. The way that they pulled us out of the main plot of Doom and Latveria and how all this 2099 stuff happened and is this really Doom? Remember, at the at the core, that's always the background mystery. Just who is this and how did they get here? And I've been thinking about that, how these issues came to be. How did we get a three-issue story driven by Fortune, a side character, looking for her brother? Doom didn't protagonize the story, right? The inciting incident was elsewhere in the cast, not with the rightful ruler of Latveria, not with the title character. Now, if this were a mini-series, that would probably be unusual. With a limited series, you need to keep that focus consistently on your main character. But by this point, it seemed like the title had crossed that first hurdle of not being canceled early. It wasn't killed at 8 issues or 10 issues or 12. We're here at 17 and 18. Sales were strong enough to justify the title keeping going. They wouldn't know it at the time, of course, but they're not even halfway through the full run of Doom 2099. So what I'm getting at here is that I think the title has moved from the fingers crossed that we don't get canceled So let's make sure we tell the story we want to phase into the, we are now an ongoing. So let's stretch our wings a little bit and get to know the supporting cast while hopefully not forgetting where we wanted to go phase. (laughs) In a weird sense, this might be a positive sign, this type of story, giving fortune a chance to drive the plot and to bring some resolution to that story of her missing brother. And as odd as it is to put Doom himself in, now I'm not trying to exaggerate or anything, but to put him in more of a supporting role than we're used to seeing, that's sort of a good thing. 
from a certain point of view. Maybe it would have been seen at the time to a current reader, which I was, as a good thing because it sends a signal that the series was going to be around for a while, which, of course, it was. Now, in terms of the story, uh, in terms of Doom's role, at least, really being the heavy, that's fitting. It works. Moore gives him some strong words to say, both against the aliens and against Feng Wang. I liked that take on his role, actually. Wouldn't want it all the time, uh, every issue, uh, but sometimes you do have to focus on the side characters. Give them an issue or two. Yes, three issues may have been pushing it for this story. I have to admit that. Like when Doom and Wire spent some issues pretty much just in cyberspace, back around like issue six or seven or eight, they may have spent a little too much issue real estate off the main path then, and I think maybe they do here as well. But I don't object in theory to a story that is diversionary, at least every now and then. Because like I said, I do think we're moving into the equivalent of the second season or second series for my British friends. If you think about this as a TV show, so you've got eight or 10 or 13 or maybe 22 episodes to write, and you have to open the scope of the show, give everyone in the cast their own focus episode or two, their own subplots. But that can be a struggle for the creator, whether it's on TV or in comic books, being thrust into an act two that you just don't know how long it's going to last. So whatever you had planned for the destination, you've been told that that destination has been put off into the future further than you may have been prepared for. And you don't know how far off that destination has been pushed back. It's all of a sudden, again, whether it's TV or whether it's comics, you found yourself in a position as a writer of an ongoing soap opera. So maybe that's where John Francis Moore found himself at this stage of the title. Now, all that being said, the story itself, the storyline, may be an issue too long for sure. But as a sci-fi concept, it's pretty good. The idea of a possibly benevolent alien species coming to grant us their wisdom and their enlightenment, only for us to kill the emissary and miss out on those benefits, it is literally a classic sci-fi concept, a golden age of sci-fi idea. And it is pretty well packaged and delivered here. There's possibly a Jesus metaphor that can be read into this as well. The killing of the bringer of universal light and peace. But however strongly or weakly you think that specific aspect of the metaphor existed, there is still an irony here. And, and Fortune verbalizes that at the end of the issue. Again, a totally very sci-fi theme. Can't say that I'm totally sure how well this story fits into the Doom 2099 world, but I give John Francis more credit for doing a reasonable job of blending the high-concept sci-fi into the title. 
But the story itself pretty much works, and Doom's moments are strong enough, and both Feng Wong and Radian are interesting characters, that the issues work pretty well for what they are, which are the part of a second-act ongoing soap opera storyline. But it's important to not just dismiss the story out of hand, because we have to focus on the key takeaway, which is that as far as the action goes, as far as the plot goes, Doom got the super-duper golden armor. So maybe he wasn't the most active participant in the story. Maybe he wasn't the plot driver. But despite his lack of protagonosity, he ended the issue in possession of the bright golden MacGuffin. So that is a victory. And props, by the way, to Pat Broderick for the design and execution of Radian. All right, the unibrow. That's an interesting artistic choice. But the pure golden coloring works. And the Kirby-tastic geometric design is great. Again, it harkens back a good three decades uh, from when this uh, story originally uh, came out. And solely in my interpretation do I consider that also another nod to the golden age of sci-fi, back to the 50s and 60s, that era when Kirby was at his peak of creativity. So I definitely liked those elements of the comic art. They really fit. Uh, Broderick made his style to really fit into this type of uh, this type of story. Now, it does appear that the travelogue nature of the title will continue next issue, which worries me a bit because I do want us to get back to Latveria soon. But it does not seem that that's going to be the case. The last four words on the bottom of the last page of issue 18 are next, the Savage Land. Now, I don't have a problem with the Savage Land. I kind of like when titles visit there every now and then. And the concept of Savage Land 2099 does kind of intrigue me. And that visit... Next issue is probably why the Savage Land was included in that page where we whipped around and and visited various spots in the 2099 universe. That was a page I liked. It was a recognition, one we don't always get in comics, that an actual worldwide event, like a first contact with Radiant and his species, would affect people around the world, even people who appear in other of our comic books. It was just enough of a nod to Wakanda 2099 and Spider-Man 2099, etc., to make that page work for me, while also, by including the Savage Land, hinting to where the comic is going next. Now, where the comic is going next, the Savage Land, is not exactly where the podcast is going next. Although, we will be following Doom on a trip through time and space. Like we said last episode, our plan for this podcast, for the the Doom Speak shows, 
is to alternate these episodes of Doom 2099 with episodes where we cover other of Doom's glorious exploits. So the hope is that next time, and I just say hope because it hasn't been recorded yet, and I do hope to have a guest. But the plan is that we'll be looking at a true, legitimate Doom classic in which he and Tony Stark's lackey travel to Camelot in Iron Man 149 and 150. And then a month or so after that, later in the summer, we'll be coming back here to the future. So if you have any feedback on this episode, on these issues, or the world of 2099, or anything, related to our good doctor, the rightful ruler of Latveria, don't hesitate to contact me. You can do that via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on our Facebook or blog post for this episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening. Take care. And hail doom. Hail, hail doom. doom.